Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Uh, so good to be back with you guys again. Um, I was trying to think how long it's been that we've had a uh, connection, a, a relationship in the gospel together. And I think it's probably been 12 years uh, with the church, but certainly with some of your leaders going well beyond that. And um, excited to be here. I, um, I'm so glad to see Jesse here. Uh, Jesse is at our sending church uh, in the past, last uh, few years, but I had met Jesse even years prior to that at a conference being held at College Church. And uh, just uh, couldn't be more thrilled that uh, you have called him to come and to serve here, and um, I'm excited to see what God has in store uh, for you in the future. God has many things he wants to do through this church, and I hope you're encouraged, uh, even as um, Jesse's time with you is just beginning. And um, anyway, this, uh, I'm just going to tell you a couple of things. This, this last week has been rather interesting for me. Uh, probably starting about a month ago, we determined, you know, we really do need another car. Uh, the, the Jeep, that's a 2002, it's just, you know, it's kind of limping along, it's holding on, and uh, it just comes a time in the life of a car that you have to say goodbye and part ways. And so, you know, I've been on the hunt. Now, some of you guys will know what I mean. It's that, that male hunter's instinct. And you... Um, you know, you start looking and you start giving more time to it and you start thinking through all of the options. We're looking for a used vehicle and, uh, you know, of course, you're thinking of the age and the miles and just numerous sorts of things that are on your mind. But this is the hunt. It's, it's like the old days, the hunter-gatherers, you know. And uh, there's something within the male, at least this male, that, that really gets into this, okay? So, um, you know, you, you say, you know, I've, I've gone out 100 miles and I don't see anything that, it's not that car, you know? So you go out 125, 150, 200, 500. Pretty soon your parameters set to the whole of the U.S., right? <laughs> and you'll go anywhere for this perfect car that's going to meet the present need that you have. And so, uh, of all places, I found a car this last week in Findlay, Ohio. Anybody know where Findlay, Ohio is? If you travel 75, you probably know it because you pass through. Is anybody from Findlay, Ohio? I got to be careful what I say here. Um, anyway, Findlay, Ohio, it's, uh, you know, I, I looked it up on the map. I said, I think I know where that's at. And, and I, oh yeah, my sister lives in Warsaw, Indiana, that, that area. So I thought, I'll just drive down to Warsaw, I'll spend the night with her, go the rest of the way, trade in my Jeep, pick up the new vehicle, come home. It, I had it worked out perfectly in my mind, and I had the price worked out too. And so um, it came time, the car checked out, it came time for the negotiation, and uh, they would not budge at all. And then they wanted to um, give me the, the lowest, lowest possible trade-in dollar for my Jeep. I mean, it was the absolute lowest. I checked it out on Kelly Blue Book. I know what that Jeep could sell for. I know what it should be trading in at. And they wanted to give me the very lowest. And then further to uh, add pain to misery, they insulted my Jeep. Now, if you're a Jeep owner, okay, for somebody to insult your Jeep, that, that really hurts, okay? So um, I wasn't going to come up to their price, and I kept working it to the point where I left. And I went over the hill on the other side of the interstate, and I sat there for a minute thinking, okay, what do I do? I really hate to go back with this Jeep because I'm not sure the Jeep will even make it back. But uh, <laughs> there's other reasons too. So I said, 
All right, I'm going to give these guys one last chance. I called my wife, and she said, yeah, go for it. So I thought, I'm going to go up, and I'm going to be like 160 bucks under their asking price. And I'm going to just take this as a sign from the Lord. I don't, I don't do this all the time, but, you know, you've got you to figure out some way to call it, right? So I said, I'm going to call it at that price. So I offered them the price. They would not budge, even $160. And I said, you're not going to come down. You're going to lose a sale over. I said, I have the cash here. I can go to the bank. I'm going to give you cash for the car. Nope, we're not doing it. And then they started telling me about what a great deal I was getting and how really the car should have been priced at another price to begin with. Oh, that, that was just it for me. I said, wait a minute. We talked yesterday all day long about a, fixed pro about a certain listed price, and now you're telling me that wasn't even the real price of the car? I said, that logic just doesn't work here. So anyway, at that point, I was ready to come home, okay? And I'm driving home to uh, Wheaton, and, you know, it was just this weird feeling like, you know, like the wind sucked out of you. And then I started thinking that I'm coming here today. And I thought about this passage and the partnership and the gospel we share. And suddenly I didn't even care about the car anymore, quite honestly. Isn't that kind of life? You know, you get so absorbed in something until you come to an ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality has a way in God's design of lifting you up, lifting your spirits, lifting your mindset, anchoring you in something that is more real more permanent, more important. And uh, this text does that for us. I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful book, and uh, I think we've misunderstood it at times uh, because we get focused in a certain direction. But I want to set a trajectory this morning. I want to talk about this concept of being partners in the gospel and then I want to help flesh that out in the book itself so you can see tangibly what it looks like and then just think through some of the implications. Now, um, Jesse heard me preach this message at College Church, but it's actually going to be a different message, okay, because I've been rethinking this and uh, turning it over more in my mind and, of course, I'm coming here with a couple of thoughts in mind. One of them is similar to when I preached it at College Church, and that is this, that uh, you have shared in a partnership with us in the gospel. As Paul and the Philippians shared, I'm not comparing myself with Paul or saying all the particulars are the same, but there is a, a bedrock relationship that we have together in the gospel, and we have shared in that, and we have known that over these years. And I am grateful to you. And as I was driving back, I'm thinking, I am so grateful for the friends at Kishwaukee Bible Church that we share in this relationship together. It's so more, much more significant than, than purchasing a vehicle, even if it were a brand new vehicle. There's no comparison between that experience and the experience we share. And the second reason I was uh, drawn to this passage again was uh, as I thought about uh, Pastor Jesse just beginning here in his relationship with you. There is a relationship that a pastor has with his people, that elders have with the people of a church. And I think this is what it is. It's a partnership in the gospel. 
And so as you think of going forward in ministry together, I want to call your attention to this reality. Hopefully fill your hearts with joy, because I think that's what Paul is doing in this book as well, but also help set a trajectory for your future together. So let me just read the opening verses down through verse 12. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Please join me in prayer. Father, we commit these moments to you and we ask that your word would be clear, that you would speak to us, fill us with joy, Fill us with hope, fill us with a focus and a wonder of all that you have brought us into, who you have made us to be, and what you seek to accomplish through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the heart of this letter is this concept we find in verse 5. Paul is filled with joy in verse 3 and 4. You know, he's extravagant in his praise of the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Almost sounds over the top, doesn't it? But this is Paul's heart affection bleeding through for the Philippian believers. And what is at the center of this? At the very center is this partnership in the gospel that he speaks of. Later he'll say, you are all partakers of grace with me. That is, we share together in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, both in my imprisonment and in, um, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We are partners. Now, behind this, this thought here is the, is the word koinonia. It's a very familiar word that you, you probably have heard many times. It's the idea of fellowship. But I want to caution us because uh, often when we think of the word fellowship, we go in the wrong direction. Uh, we might think that when I meet together with a believer and usually we sit down and we eat a meal or we have a cup of coffee together, we meet up at Starbucks, then I'm having fellowship, okay? And perhaps we are, but fellowship is so much more than that, okay? Fellowship is more like a, a joint venture where you have two or more parties that are coming together and those parties 
are taking of all of their resources, their time, their energy, their money, and they're pooling those resources, taking on the risk of a joint venture and working with all their energy to accomplish this great task. Well, Paul speaks of our relationship as this kind of a partnership in the gospel. The bringing together of our resources, our financial resources, our time resources, our giftings, all of that for the gospel. So this partnership is not an ordinary partnership. It's not like we decided one day we're going to uh, get together and wouldn't it be a great idea if we do something significant in DeKalb? No, this partnership is put together by God himself. That's how Paul speaks as he goes on in verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you, this good work of partnership he speaks of in the prior verse, verse 5. He who began that good work, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Isn't it interesting how the, the Christian is to think? He thinks a certain way about time thinks back about the time of entering in to relationship with Jesus Christ. He thinks forward to the time of the Lord Jesus' return. And of course, we're going to be brought back to that by the end of Paul's prayer in verse 11, uh, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, we, as we walk through this world we recognize a time when God fundamentally altered our relationship to Him and to one another, and we live out that relationship that He began, recognizing He will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This defines our time. What it means is you have a new identity if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the great... Um, I guess one of the great issues of our day is the issue of identity. Who am I? It's probably been the foundational question of all of human history. For people to come to a sense of an understanding of who I am. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this, but I want you to understand that if you are in Christ, you've got this one in spades. The Bible helps you understand who you are and knowing who you are sets the trajectory for the rest of your life. People that know who they are, they will find success in life. By that, I don't simply mean the world's view of success, I mean God's view of success. But you will be successful as you come to know who you are, and the Bible teaches you who you are. This scripture tells us that we have been brought into a partnership in the gospel by God himself. And that understanding of partnership in the gospel is to govern our days until the very end. We have a new identity. You are a somebody. <laughs> you are connected to something bigger than yourself. You're connected to something bigger than this group in which you find yourself. You're connected to something bigger than DeKalb. You're connected to something bigger than the United States. You're connected to God himself and his plan to work out his salvation in the world. You have an identity, and it is a rich, rich identity. And when you understand that identity, 
You'll look around at the people about you, and you will engage in ministry with them, and your heart will be full of joy like Paul's is full of joy. Do you experience that joy daily in your life? If you're like me, you probably get overwhelmed by the grind of life. But this is the very thing that helps lift us up above the overwhelming pressures, the waves of life that come upon us and helps us to see once again what is our identity? What do we actually have in Christ? And it fills our hearts with incredible joy. Paul goes on to say, he's almost justifying himself, you know. For the person that thinks, oh, Paul, you're going over the top here. Is this really the Christian experience, knowing this level of joy? You don't know the people that sit near me in church, Paul. Really? Well, for Paul, it is. He says, it's right for me, verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why? Because of this partnership in the gospel. You are all partakers of grace with me in the defense, the confirmation of the gospel, and his imprisonment. They have not shrunk back. They've identified with him in these ways. And then he says, for God is my witness. This is like an oath we take in a court of law. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. You couldn't say it in stronger terms. Philippians, do you know the, the affection that Jesus Christ has for you? That's the affection I have as well. And it's all centered around this partnership in the gospel that they share together. Now, let's just think a little bit about this partnership in the gospel. I want to take you to the end of the book, chapter 4. Because here we see this cropping up again toward the end of the letter. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. This is Paul's way of getting to the heart of the issue. Philippians, the issue isn't the money you've sent my way. It goes much deeper than that. And so he goes on, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am, whether I'm brought low or high, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I have or I don't have, Christ provides the strength for it. Yet, look how Paul continues. It was kind of you to share my trouble. They've entered in. This is the language of partnership. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So what does this partnership look like? We're beginning to see a bit of it here. They didn't shrink back from Paul's imprisonment when he writes the letter. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know Paul. Um, I don't want to identify with that. That looks pretty rough. They didn't shrink back from the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing to herald that testimony, even though it might have profound implications, negative implications for them. And they had been giving him money in the past, and they've revived that concern for him. And they've sent another gift his way. And so Paul says, uh, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's concern for their maturity, their growth, their reward. 
I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. They are a fragrant offering, a beautiful aroma to the Lord. Drawing upon that Old Testament language from the book of Leviticus, when an offering was given, a sacrificial offering, it makes its way up to God. God smells that gift, and He is satisfied. This is what their gift was like to the Apostle Paul and before the face of God, an act of worship. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This partnership in the gospel, it's at the core of their identity. And Paul wants them to cultivate this view of partnership. Just look at a couple of places in this book with me. Uh, After Paul tells them in verse 12, chapter 1, I want you to know that what has happened to me, what's happened to Paul? He's in prison. He's in chains, likely before Caesar's guards. And he says, I want you to know it's really served to advance the gospel. Sounds like a father speaking to his son and helping him to understand life and what's going on at the lower or that deeper level. (laughs) You know, the situation looks bad. The car that I was pursuing and lost looked bad on the surface. But perhaps something much greater was really at work. Paul is in prison, but he's saying something much greater is at work. And because of this, many of the guards, and even in Caesar's household, they're coming to faith in Christ. And he wants, Paul wants to alter the way they think so that in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of that suffering, they are standing strong. So then he comes down to verse 27. Only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are, now listen to this, verse 27. I may hear you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear the the language of partnership working? It's, It's a battle scene, right? Standing side by side for the faith of the gospel, striving together, working with sweat, blood, tears, all together for the sake of the gospel. Or look down further uh, later in chapter 2. Uh, he's telling them in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Okay? So as you live out life together as the people of God in Philippi, I want you to do it without grumbling, without complaining. So grateful for what Jesse read to us this morning because there is a mind shift that you must undergo if you're going to live out this identity as a partner in the gospel. And it comes through chapter 2, to take on the mind of Christ. How do you deal with grumbling and complaining? The only antidote is to take on the mind of Christ, to prefer others before yourselves. And then what's going to happen? Even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you will shine like lights in the world. In the midst of a very dark place, your light will be brightly shining, heralding the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is the goal of partnership in the gospel. Now, you've probably been around long enough to see different groups of people or churches where there is grumbling and there's backbiting and there are tensions going on. There's ulterior motives and people judging one another's motives. It's an awful place, isn't it? It's an awful place to be. But when people lay that aside, they follow what Paul is instructing here. It's a beautiful thing. It's an attractive thing. You want to be there, don't you? This is the beauty of this kind of partnership in the gospel. It's what God's called us to, and it's what fills our hearts with joy. So what I want you to know at the outset is you have a new identity as a partner in the gospel, and you're called into it by God Himself, and you're called to live it out until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And as you do that, joy will permeate, joy will, will flood this place, the joy that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. There's another thing here. Not only do you have a new identity, we have a new way of relating to one another. I want to be brief on this because I want to draw out some of the implications we see here in the book and uh, perhaps think through what it might look like here. But Paul picks up the prayer proper in verse 9. He tells us what his prayer actually is. Paul has just uh, he's spoken about this identity that we have and the depth of his love, so much love does he have for this, the, the people in this partnership in the gospel that it's as if he has the affections of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. That is deep love. But that is not something that's easy. That's not something that happens automatically. It's something that's cultivated through practice and even more important, through prayer. Through prayer. When is the last time you've prayed a prayer like this? You've prayed for love. Love for that person that you're having a hard time with. Um, we need God's resources. Prayer, that's what it's about, isn't it? Prayer is an act of faith. It's an act of dependence upon God. We're turning to Him and we're asking for something because we know there's no way in the world that we're going to be able to produce it. That's why Paul prays for the Philippians. He knows they can't do this of their own strength and energy. So we cry out for the divine resource to empower us. Paul prays here, verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. An ever-growing love. And just to take you to the end of this, look where it ends up. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When we have an ever-abounding love, its ultimate end is to glorify God Himself, to draw attention. And you've experienced this. You say, you know, being in that group of people, maybe that's your feeling here, you say, you know, there's just nothing like it in the world. It, it, raises, it elevates your thoughts. You say, isn't God great? Only he could produce this, this kind of love, this ever-growing, ever-abounding. Is this your prayer today that God would do this? There's so much we could touch on here, but uh, it's an abounding love. It's, it's got knowledge and it has uh, discernment. Uh, knowledge is perhaps that more general understanding. Discernment is able to apply that knowledge, apply it to the situations of everyday life. 
You know, how do I wrestle with that difficult relationship? Well, I know generally about God and His ways that it's like, this is the knowledge I have about Him, but now I'm working to apply that knowledge in a discerning way. Um, and so it's not a, uh, a kind of let go. It's not a, a simple, you know, just learn to love people. No, it's a growing in its maturity and understanding how to apply God's truth. Uh, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him. You see, so it's, it's a maturing kind of love and we desperately need to cry out for God. I, it's so interesting to me that when Paul, after he gets past the talking about the identity we have as partners in the gospel, you, you just ask yourself, where could Paul have gone after that? What, what would be the next thing on his mind? Uh, if, it was, if it was us in America because of our particular values, we probably would have said, okay, now we need a vision and we need a strategy. Uh, we need better methodology. And so we'd want to articulate our approach, perhaps. But Paul goes to love. Isn't that interesting? And it's probably because love is the one resource that will get you through everything. <laughs> if it's a discerning, knowledgeable love, it will help you navigate and do so in a way that is healthy, that strengthens the partnership. This isn't some kind of sappy sentimentalism here. This is the authentic, authentic love that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to move to help us to see the depth of this love in chapter 2. Okay? So we have a new identity. We have a new way of relating to God and to one another. We cry out to Him because we know our desperation and our need. And when the problems arise, and they will, when the problems arise, we're crying out to God for His resources, for His love to guide us and carry us forward. Now, let's just think about this a little bit as Paul sees it working itself out in, in the book of Philippians. Because so far, you're probably saying, oh, this sounds great. Yes, I have a new identity. I like that. Partners in the gospel. Sounds so great and wonderful. Love. Okay, I can see that. Okay, but now, when it gets down to the application and thinking through and teasing it out, how do we actually relate to one another? I think Paul is the example of this. I think we've already seen it. But I want to move you into the, uh, the second part of this book. First, in chapter 2, uh, you heard and you know this passage well. Uh, we are to consider others better than ourselves. We are to strive for unity. How do we strive for unity? It is by that path of humility, the path the Lord Jesus took. And by the way, if you're ever tempted to say, uh, do the meek really win? Do they really inherit the earth? You know, Jesus said the meek inherit the earth. If you're ever tempted to say that, Look at this passage. The pivot is in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above. Therefore. Now, you know, when you see that word, you're supposed to go back and look at why is it there? What comes just before it? It's the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. The depths of which he was prepared to go to win our salvation. It says in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself. If, if the humanity wasn't enough of a humbling, he went further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
If that wasn't enough, it's obedience even to the point of death. If that wasn't enough, it's even death on a cross. It's the electric chair of the day. People wear it as a nice little necklace, but actually, that's not how it was thought of. Can you imagine wearing a, a, an electric chair around your neck? A little different, isn't it? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Have you ever wondered, is it worth it going down the path of humility? Having my rights trampled over and is it worth it? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus ever thought that. Is this going to be worth it? But therefore, God highly exalted him. There is not one who will walk down this path of humility that will not experience that ultimate justification from God himself. It is exceedingly worth it. God highly exalted him, gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and in, on earth. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is worth it. So with that in mind, as you think about that, notice the way Paul goes on to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says down in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Does that have the ring of the earlier part of chapter 2 in it? He's not concerned for himself. He's considering others better than himself. He's concerned for your welfare. Others, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See how Paul is deliberately drawing us back. He's showing us Timothy's interest in people. The way Timothy operates and acts, it is fueled by what we find earlier. He's thinking like a partner in the gospel, a partner that humbles himself, puts others before himself in life and in ministry. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as, I see, as soon as I see how things will go with me. I trust in the Lord, I myself. Timothy could go because Paul said, he lives like a partner in the gospel. Look at Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was coming from the Philippians to Paul with the gift. We already read that. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Already we're hearing chapter 2. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So the Philippians are distressed because Epaphroditus is ill. Epaphroditus is distressed because he knows the Philippians are worrying about him. Isn't that a wonderful picture? What level of care do we have for one another? Week to week, if somebody ends up in the hospital or somebody has lost a job, what level of care do we have? Sometimes we reach out to others <laughs> and uh, sometimes we feel toward those who have reached out toward us. But this is an amazing example, isn't it? And then look at how Paul goes on to speak about him. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anguish. 
So receive him in the Lord with all the joy and honor such men, uh, for he nearly died. That's the second time Paul highlights this. Well, who died in chapter 2? Seeking the interest of somebody else. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? I don't think these are throwaway lines. I don't think Paul inserts Timothy and Epaphroditus here just to give news. I think he's shaping the way they view their partnership in the gospel. How they live it out. The concern of others first. The concerns of the Lord Jesus Christ first. And ironically, in the midst of all of that suffering and struggle, this is actually what brings the joy. (laughs) But if you're like me, I'm tempted when I'm going through suffering and difficulty to pull back. I'm tempted to focus inward about myself because I've got to get my house in order. I've got to deal with what's on my plate. What an awesome uh, testimony of Timothy and Epaphroditus, the way they lived out this partnership, and ultimately that's what brings the joy. Let me take you to one last example and I'll be done. Let's go to the women in chapter 4. Clearly an argument is going on. Clearly a struggle. Now, it's not because these women are bad women. They're good women. Paul even says they have uh, stood side by side with him. They they have labored, he says, verse 2 of chapter 4. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers uh, whose names are in the book of life. Paul's convinced about them, that their names are in the book of life, but they're struggling. What do you do at a time like that? Do you throw the partnership out the door? How do you move forward in such a critical moment? Well, you need help, right? So Paul entreats Yodia and Syntyche, and then he says, yes, and I ask you also, verse 3, true companion. We don't know who this is, but we know that he's asking this true com- companion to help these women. Help needs to be brought in. But he also asks Yodia and Syntyche this, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. What in the world is he saying? Agree in the Lord. Well, note what he's not saying, okay? And note what he is saying. First, he's saying agree, right? But he's not saying figure it out on your own. He's saying agree in the Lord. I think what he has in mind here, because of the path he has led us down, He is helping us to understand the nature of the gospel itself, the way it transforms us, giving us a new identity, giving us a new way of relating with one another in love and crying out for that. And he says it must come to this, agree in the Lord. In other words, you so value this partnership, you so value the gospel itself, you value the Lord Jesus Christ that you're able to find your way to agreement because it is centered in this relationship that God has begun, that God is continuing, and that God will bring to full completion. Agree in the Lord. It's a way of relating to one another. And what is the end? The end is joy. Paul comes back to that here. Verse 4 to verse uh, 10 
actually verse 4 to verse 9, um, I think Paul's continuing to help the women see how you deal with this, okay? Think about it, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, okay? In other words, when we're in those moments of relational difficulty, we're often very anxious, aren't we? And we're, we're, mind is running wild. Mind is often infusing motive <laughs> when we can't tell the motive of a person's heart. And, and Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. Come back to this relationship you have with Him. Don't be anxious. Let Him care for it. Make your request. Cry out to God in prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. And what's going to happen then when we do that? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or think what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence. In other words, you're not going to sit around uh, thinking about Euodia if you're Syntyche and saying, well, I just know what she meant by this. You're not infusing motive. Instead, your mind is going down the path of pure thoughts, wholesome thoughts, good thoughts, perhaps lifting her up before the Lord. And so whatever's true, honorable, just, that's what you're allowing to come into your mind. And what happens when you do that? Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that interesting? Back in verse 6, he says, 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. But now he says, the God of peace himself will be with you in this partnership. Well, we could talk much longer about the implications of this. But I wonder, what, what does it mean here? If, if you, a Kishwaki, if we are going to have a thriving partnership, first here and then beyond, what does it mean? What will have to happen in the days ahead for this partnership to flourish, for this body to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, for this body to give glory and praise to God Almighty? Isn't it a great pursuit? <laughs> it may come with its struggle, but wow. What an awesome thing to think God himself has given us this identity. And God himself wants to give us the strength to live it out. And what a great moment for this church, as you've called new pastor to come, to set the trajectory for the days ahead, saying we long for this kind of experience. You've had it in the past. You can continue with it in the future. It will become even more mature. God himself is at work. Thank you so much. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the good news of the gospel, for what he has done in us. And uh, we cry out for your help. We thank you for the identity you've given us, and we pray that you will give us your love, this kind of love that comes from above, and enable us to live out this partnership all of our days as we wait for eagerly and expectantly the day of the Lord Jesus' return. And help us, Father, 
to live in a way that will bring glory to you all of our days, and especially on the day of your return. Help us to strive side by side together for the gospel. Help us to shine as lights in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. We long for this experience, and we thank you because you are the author of it, and you will continue it to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.